Greetings to each one in Jesus' name this morning. Just thought of that song, and as I was listening to the words of it, then I looked at the author of it, Sinsendorf. I believe that was the the one that that sheltered the Moravians. I believe he had a vision. For brotherhood, he had a vision also for the church and the world, and it came out in his song. Well, what day is it today? What week is it? The last week of the year, when the businesses do inventory and, uh, and taxes, other paperwork. And sometimes it's good for us to evaluate how has our past year been and what for vision do we have for the future. You know, think of this past year in your own life. What has happened? Some good things have happened, I'm sure. I could name up a number of things. You could have a child or a sibling come to the Lord. Maybe you bought a home, house. Maybe you progressed in your business or your finances. Or you got some answers to your health, bad health, hopefully. (laughs) And some other thing that we consider are bad could have happened to you too. I uh, lost a father this past year. And my mother fell and broke her hip and became less independent. (laughs) And you have your, what you would call your setbacks or your failures or your difficulties in this past year as well. And that is life. That is life. What I'm actually more interested in is what is your trajectory, which Direction have you headed in this past year? Because we're all at a place, but all of us are moving. None of us are um, what solid state and static. I think static means moving and solid state means nothing moves. Where none of us are solid state, we're all static. We're all moving. And so, what's your trajectory been this past year? And which direction are you headed at the moment? In your walk with God and your sensitivity to Him. And we could add what we heard this morning about your uh, relationship with your brothers and sisters. (laughs) Could add that. You know, for the coming year, none of us will say today, this year, I'm going to backslide. Who would, who would want to say that? No, we don't want to say that. This year, I'm going to have a major failure in my life. This year, I will have a major relational breakdown with someone. This year, I'm going to ignore the needs of those around me. (laughs) No, we don't say that. But you know what? Those things will come to us anyhow. 
they will present themselves to us anyhow. A.W. Tozer said, Were we able to extract from a man a complete answer to the question, What comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, a trajectory. If you could actually get out of each one of our hearts what we really think, what our thoughts are, what we think about when we think about God, it will give us a trajectory. And as I was sitting here this morning, we talk a lot about having a relationship with God, being open with God, walking with God, and that's all right. But the question also comes up, what kind of God are you having this relationship with? Did you know that is probably just as important? (laughs) Is it the true God of the scripture as revealed, the eternal and the almighty and the holy and the righteous and the loving God? Or is it some other thing that's not worthy of the thoughts of God? So, yes, a relationship with God, but also the true God. So, so he is saying if we could truly know the condition of our heart in this area, we could quite accurately predict the trajectory of our spiritual life. And so just just a few thoughts about that. Now, my message, my main message isn't taking inventory. I actually have a topic. And the topic is on instead of thinking about God this morning. (laughs) No, that's not true. Instead of putting our thoughts towards God this morning, we're going to put our thoughts towards ourselves. That seems sort of contradictory. But we're going to talk about humility this morning. And that has to do with how we view ourselves. And how we function and those thoughts. So that's, that's actually the topic this morning. The title is The Virtue of Humility. So why don't we just, these are all set up real nice. Let's just pray. Let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful this morning that you are the Almighty God. And Lord, as we have been saved by you, you have sought us, you have bought us, you have redeemed us, and you have done many things in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We're grateful for that. We also sense the need, Lord, for continual work of you in our lives, especially if we think of the coming year, as you link us stepping over the threshold into a, a new year, Lord, that our direction and our trajectory would be towards you, towards your will, towards your purpose for our lives. And Lord, this morning, as we think of this topic, this subject, I just pray, Lord, you'd open up each one of our hearts, open up our eyes to see our own hearts in this area, and then, Lord, challenge us and direct us accordingly. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Humility, to speak about what we think about ourself, myself, yourself. 
Humility, someone has said, I don't know where the quote is, is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. <clears throat> someone once told John Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, someone told John Bunyan after he preached the message, he told him that was a good message. And John told him, you're too late. The devil already told me that. Hmm. It's pretty quick. So this topic this morning, I heard a Bible teacher who, when he found a truth in God's word, he would practice it for six months before he'd preach it. I'm not going to do that on this topic. Because I would never, I'm afraid I would never preach it. So we'll learn together on this topic. You see, pride is of such a nature that you can be full of it and not see it. It's a little bit like bad breath. You can see it in others, but you can hardly identify it in yourself. You get a little bit of a sense, yeah, maybe something's coming out of my mouth. You know, it's just a little bit of a sense, but others, they can see it. And that's generally how pride is. And humility. What's humility? Well, the word means low lying. It means the opposite of pride. The opposite of being high-minded or haughty or vain or self-sufficient and that kind of thing. And, and humility. You see, we, we make, we have some church expectations and church standards and we, we have expectations, but you can't put, you can't put a standard on this thing because it is a temper of soul. A temper, you know, it's a, it's a condition of soul, of the heart. You can't put your finger on it. But it's deeply, deeply a heart matter. The humble person is not vitally concerned about himself and all that goes with it. The position, the reputation, the possessions, and we could name more. An humble person, a truly humble person is free. Now, I say free is a relative term because none of us are truly completely everything of one but relative. But an humble person is free from both the fear of man and the praise and admiration of man. He's free of both of those because both of those are indications of pride. The fear of man and uh, wish, desire for his admiration. So let's illustrate that. You can turn to Matthew chapter 18. Verses 1 to 4. We'll read these verses here. At the same time, the disciples came came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, 
ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One thing we can take from this is the disciples did not understand humility or its importance, and they didn't have it. Imagine that. Jesus, the most important person on the whole face of the earth, had a group of proud people around him. Imagine that. If you imagine you being a leader of an organization, and all you have around you is a bunch of proud people that are want to be in the top. That's what Jesus was working with. I'm glad none of us are like that and that he doesn't have to work that way with us. <clears throat> the most, the disciples of the most important person on earth, the Lord Jesus, were proud men. Earlier, if we look back, they had been disputing on the way. They were disputing, they were arguing who's going to be the greatest. And so they came to Jesus and asked a question, and that was a good thing to do. If you have a question, come to the Lord Jesus. Now, he may not give you the answer you want. You know, you want answers to prayer? Well, they got an answer to their prayer. <laughs> but it wasn't the answer they wanted, but it was the answer. So their question was, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Lord, and so he prayed, Lord, who's going to be the greatest? It was dear to their heart. Each of them wanted to be at or near the top. So, right after the Lord Jesus, and you go in the chapter before, the Lord Jesus had predicted that he's going to be rejected by the Jewish nation. They're going to reject him. They're going to crucify him. They're going to kill him. And... Apostles, it sobered them a little bit, but then it seemed like they just didn't get it. And here they were with their worldly and ambitious views, striving for their honor and power and contending with each other. Contention often stems itself in pride. You know, that is actually how human nature is. Disciples are it, it, their pride will make you it will make you blind and unfeeling. It'll make you selfish and ambitious. It'll make you covetous. I suppose Cain probably had some pride. Now he definitely did. <clears throat> and it's about those little perishable things of life become very big when you have pride. Jesus saw their heart, and he was not pleased with what he saw. Of course, it's a teachable moment. So maybe if it's in their hearts, and they're not going to get it out of their heart until this teachable moment comes, maybe Jesus was glad for this moment. But he did not like what he saw in their hearts. So he gave them an object lesson. He took this little child and he told them verily. You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and 
Nicodemus had some questions for him. And Jesus told him, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be born again, ye shall not enter, ye cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So it's an absolute essential that you are born again or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. There's a very, very, it's truly, truly. Well, here he says, Verily I say to you, except you become converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Same kind of importance on this kind of humility that the disciples did not have. He said, if you don't have this, this is not a side issue. This is not a take it or leave it issue. This is absolute. It's not one of the non-essentials if there is things like that. My kingdom is populated with humble people. So he uses his child as an illustration. And what is a child from? Why? I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And, of course, you can think of a little child and little children. They play together. It doesn't matter if if somebody from royalty, the king's son in royalty, when he's a little boy, will play with the beggar because it doesn't matter to them. They're children. They don't have they don't have this status, this ambition. They don't have this uh, reputation. They don't have anything to protect. They just see another child, and it's someone they can play with. To become as little children. That child would be free from pride in this area. And then Jesus said, those who become as little children, the same is greatest. So, our Lord does answer did answer their prayer. He said, who will be the greatest? And he told them, who will be the greatest? What did he say? Whosoever they also humble himself as the little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord Jesus said that all will be equal. Some will be greater than others. And it's the people that are most humble. The only superiority among disciples of the Lord Jesus must come from those who are the deepestly humble people. The more humility you have, the greater you are in Jesus' kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. And as your humility increases, so will your likelihood that you will abuse any kind of position, any kind of power, any kind of talent that you have. The more humble you are, the less likely you are to abuse it. And that is awesome. And then your effectiveness in his kingdom increases. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe every Christian has a choice between being humble and being humbled. So God is able to do that, and he has done it for multitudes of people. 
God is able to humble anyone. And let's look at an illustration here in Acts chapter 7. Please turn there because we're looking at a number of verses here. Acts chapter 7 is when Stephen was going over the history of the Jewish people. And I chose this one because he goes over the history of Moses in a little more detail here. Well, it's maybe compacted in detail here than it would be in Exodus. Starting at verse 20 and reading to verse 30. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sir, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. We'll stop reading there. Moses had the education and the position and the ability and the popularity of Egypt. And I know that some people who, who's, who had done some historical study, he was a mighty man in Egypt, which means he was an accomplished man. Uh, what they could do in their rigorous um, escapades that they did, uh, we don't have real clear, but we can assume by what we know that he was a talented, gifted, and able man. Well educated. Till he got the top of the cream of the, t- the best, the best teachers and, and, and all of that, the best education. He had it all. And from that position of power and strength, he began to bring justice to his people, the Israelites, and began his deliverance program. I don't know how much he understood, but he apparently recognized that he he was in a place to bring deliverance to his people. And that was a good thing, right? Moses recognized his life's calling, and he began to exercise himself in his life's calling. He saw an injustice, and he tried to correct it. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? That's the right thing to do. You see someone who is wrongfully treated... You should stand up for that person, right? But he wasn't ready for what God wanted to do. His heart wasn't ready. And neither did he have the right perspective of what God wanted to do. 
So God put him in his school. God has a school too. So he went into Egypt and he had his all his schooling. Then God put him in his school, although Moses didn't know he was in God's school. Do you know if you're in God's school? Are you in God's school? Do you recognize it that you are in God's school? And when God was done with him, there was not one iota, a fraction of an iota of confidence left in him to do what he felt earlier thought his life calling was. There was nothing left in him. You could go back in, in, in Exodus, you can read about it, how God almost couldn't get him back. But that's when God said, you are ready. When you are now emptied of your own self-confidence, now you are ready. And he went back to deliver the children of Israel. He was dependent on the power of God. And God says of him, what does God say of Moses? He was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Meekest means power under control. So Moses was a powerful man. He was a powerful man. But all that power was now under the control of God. That is a picture of humility. He was dependent on God and his directives. By the way, children are called dependents, another way of child. We are God's children. We are God's dependents. At least that's what we should be. Sometimes when I take my children, my little children along on the truck with me, on a run, and I go to a customer and they say, oh, you got the boss along today. And I say, they're not supposed to be. <laughs> but here's the question. You are a child of God. And if you would come with God, would the, uh, what would the status be there? Is true humility something God gives you? Is it just something that just grows with time? Do you just get more humble in time? How is humility worked out into the deepest recesses of your heart where it becomes a principle, a temper of soul? How is that worked out? Does anybody have the recipe for humility here. I'd like to take a picture of it. If you have one. How is our pride. With its boasting and its conniving. And its fears. Uprooted from our heart. Where it has been for many years. How do you uproot that pride. And it's replaced with humility. Well it's clear both from God's word and from my own experience, that it does not mysteriously appear in my heart. A Christian is not just free from pride when you become a Christian. You're not automatically, if that doesn't, it doesn't lessen the seriousness of it. It just means it's not automatically there. And yet, it's still true. 
What is true? God hates pride. He hates it. He hates the part of the devil that's in you. That's how God hates it. Where there's pride in you, that is a part of the devil in you. Now, I know I'm using language that maybe not theologically correct. (laughs) But the devil was lifted up in pride. And we should not ordain someone who is young in the faith, lest he be come under the same condemnation of the devil by being lifted up in pride. So it has connections with the devil. That's why I said that. But true humility is a sign of maturity. We can turn to very familiar verses in Matthew chapter 11. And we'll look a little bit here. Of a process. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. These very familiar verses. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first part of of this passage is an invitation. Come, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Those who are laden down with guilt. Those who are laden down with cares. You have burdens. You, You have been shattered. Whatever dreams you had or whatever problems you had, Lord Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And it speaks to me of that initial, initial salvation that you get when you come to Jesus. This is a gift. This is given by faith. When you come to Jesus, he will give you rest from your weary, heavy, laden heart. He will bring joy. He will bring lightness. He will relieve you. That's a gift of the Lord Jesus. And then comes a yoke with that. Yes, a yoke. A yoke that's on your shoulders. And you're thinking of making a physical picture of it. And it's something you put on. But don't fret and don't frown. Alongside of you with that yoke, you're yoked in. Alongside of you on that other side of the yoke is the Lord Jesus. And so you have a yoke. Two people, two oxen in a yoke, but in this case it's you and it's the Lord Jesus. You're yoked together. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And the Lord Jesus will go with you. And the Lord Jesus, as he's in the yoke with you, will not ask you or take you anywhere that he himself has not already gone. Or would not go. He won't take you anywhere that he wouldn't go. Are you asked to bear a cross? The Lord Jesus bore one. Are you asked to serve? The Lord Jesus served. Are you ridiculed or mocked for doing what's right? The Lord Jesus was ridiculed and mocked. Are you asked to submit? To a difficult 
thing in your life. So was the Lord Jesus. Yoked together. So not only has he already done it, he will go with you and he will show you the way. And you walk with him and you commune with him and you learn of him. He has a meek and lowly heart. And you think if you're yoked together with someone who's meek and lowly, do you think you will learn some meekness and lowliness? Do you think so? That makes sense, would it not? Would you be able to come down from your high horse, your ambitious dreams and your pride? And can you let go of your sorrows and fears and yoked in? And then, then you will find rest. See, the other rest was given. I will give you rest. But there he says, you will find rest. Where will you find rest? By learning of the meek and lowly Jesus. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, our Lord Jesus was such an example of humility. We can find everything we need in him. He had no pride. He waited on God. He did his father's work. He was powerful. There's no doubt the Lord Jesus was a powerful man. But all that power was utilized for the kingdom, for the glory of God. A bruised reed did he not break. He didn't quench a smoking flax. He was gentle. And he taught and continued to teach his disciples that. They were slow learners, were they not? Are you any better? <laughs> Let's find out a little more in some practical areas, some practical application. So for the last passage that we'll have this morning, and we'll spend some time in this, is in Philippians chapter 2. And all you Bible scholars already know where I'm going. Let's flesh this out a little bit more in our life and from the life of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love. You know, if, if you have any experience, if you have any experience of the peace and comfort and love that comes from Christ. Since you've become a Christian. And any, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy. Have you ever experienced any kind of common fellowship with your brothers and sisters around the Lord Jesus and around the things of God? Like we have heard this morning. If you have experienced any heartfelt compassion and care at all from your brothers and sisters, then Paul says to the Philippians, Fulfill ye my joy. Paul said, I am blessed in the Lord, but I will be blessed much more if you do this one thing for me. That ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, I meditated on that scripture early this morning and last evening some. The phrase, 
like-minded and the same love there are identical phrases. The only thing that's different in there is mind and love. So you could say it's same loved, uh, I mean, same minded or like loved, because it's, it's interchangeable, those two first two phrases. And being of one accord means to be like minded. And to be of one mind means to be together in mind. So he's saying in four different ways, he's saying the same thing. It's just like one of those superlative phrases that Paul uses just goes way abundant. So he's a light-minded, the same love, one accord, one mind. And so there is something that will make Paul very happy, very joyful. It will make his joy complete. Fulfill you, my joy. Make it full. There was, this is a, Philippians is a, is a letter called the, a letter of joy. It's a joyful letter. But it seems like there were a couple drops missing in Paul's cup as he had this cup full of joy. There were a couple drops missing. It wasn't quite full. There was a couple drops missing to make it run over. And here was it. It will, if the church here at Philippi would, be like-minded, like love, like-minded of one mind. The object which he aimed at was a union of heart, of feeling, of plan, of purpose. He wished for them to avoid all divisions and strife and to show their humility by being united in the common cause. United, uh, unity rather, and harmony in the church are an absolute essential for the apostle to experience the fullness of joy. Again, we get the idea that it's not a little issue. So, how is this done, Paul? How, 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 how do you, how do you work this out? Your joy will be full if you all have a one mind. Well, that's the positive. What's the negative? Well, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. There is our word, lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. And so we're going to go through these phrases a little bit and get some practical application on humility. Let nothing be done through strife. Well, in some homes, if nothing is done through strife, nothing much will get done. Is that right? <laughs> How about some churches? Here's Barnes' illustration of it, modified a little bit by me. The command prohibits all attempts to secure anything over others by mere physical strength or superiority of intellect or numbers, or as the result of dark schemes or plans formed by rivalry, or by the indulgences of angry passions, or with the spirit of ambition. We are not to attempt to do anything merely by outstripping others or by showing that we have more talent, more courage, or more zeal. 
What we do is to be by principle and with a desire to maintain the truth and to glorify God. And yet, how often is that rule violated? How often do Christian denominations attempt to outstrip each other and see which shall be the greatest? How often do ministers preach with no better aim than that? How often do we attempt to outdo others in dress and in the splendor of furniture and equipment? How often, even in the plans of benevolence and in the cause of virtue and religion, is the secret aim to outdo others? I don't know if you get any of that, but I can see myself in that. This is all wrong. There is no holiness in that. Never once did the Lord Jesus Christ do that. Never once did he do that. And never once should that motive of overcoming or superiority of rivalry could be our motive. So the conduct of others may be allowed to show us what we can do and ought to do, but it should not be our aim to outdo them. That's the aim. This is strife. And then let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. What is vainglory? Well, vainglory means empty pride or empty glory. <laughs> and expression of, of a, a hollow parade or a vanity and show. The idea seemed to be one of mere self-esteem, a desire to honor ourselves, self-honor, to attract attention, to win praise, to make ourselves uppermost, on top, foremost, the main object, the center of attention. That is vainglory. And we are solemnly forbidden by Paul to do anything with such, a, such an aim. No matter whether it be in intellectual attainments, physical strength, skill in music, eloquence in song, or in dress, or in anything else of life. Self is not to be foremost, and selfishness is not to be the motive. You know, as you think of vainglory, there's, there's, I don't know if there's any command of the scripture that has a wider sweep of our life than this here of vainglory. Because it touches us on all areas of our life. Do you pass a single day? Without some thoughts of vainglory. You think you do. Do we even recognize it when we have it? What minister of the gospel preaches who has never had any wish to exhibit his talents? His eloquence or learning? 
Who in conversation is always free from the desire to show his wit or his power in argumentation or his skill in debate? Who plays at the piano without a desire of commendation? Who builds a house or purchases an article of apparel or writes a book or performs a deed of benevolence altogether uninfluenced by this desire of vainglory? It touches all of our life. If all of this could, <clears throat> if, if all vainglory could be taken out of human conduct, everything that is actually both strife and vainglory, you take all, this, all the work that are done by strife and vainglory and you eliminate all of that, how much would be left getting done? How small of a portion would be left? And lest I forget, I wanted to quote this. I didn't know where to put it in. But modesty is humility expressed in dress. Humility, topic. Modesty is humility expressed in dress. But what should we have instead? Lowliness of mind. What is lowliness of mind? Well, whatever it is, is the opposite of strife and vainglory. It will have the opposite effect of what strife and vainglory has. Because the, the results of strife and vainglory, the results of that is not, will not draw us together. Now I know there is a place for social media. But if the desire for strife or vainglory were eradicated from social media, you would have probably a very small company left. (laughs) The show of vainglory is the main reason for the emotional trauma and the depression that many experience on that platform. There is no rest of the soul found in that. Now, don't forget, this problem goes beyond social media. <laughs> lowliness of mind. What is lowliness of mind? Well, let's, you can turn to First uh, Peter. I'll just read a verse, First Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Humility, that is the word as lowliness of mind is there in Philippians. Where we were reading in Philippians there, Philippians 2, it says, In lowliness of mind, esteem other better than yourself. The lowliness of mind, this word humility is the same Greek word. Be clothed with humility. Submit yourselves. All you be subject to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. I tell you what, there's no way any of us can go around this truth, because God will resist any one of us who will go around this truth of humility. Humility stands opposed to that pride or self-esteem which would have a strive for the top. 
or which acts from a desire for flattery or praise. The best and the only true correction for this problem is humility. Humility is the only thing that will fix the problem of inglory and strife. This virtue consists in estimating ourselves according to the truth. It is a willingness to take the place which we ought to take in the sight of God and man, knowing that we are only dust and frail, and we are easily swayed by our lower nature. This virtue will lead us to a willingness to perform, perform lowly and humble offices in, that we, in where we may benefit others. And back to the scripture there in Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but let each esteem other, other better than themselves. This is one of the effects produced by humility. And it naturally exists in every truly humble and modest mind. How is that? Well, we're sensible to our own defects. But we don't have the same clear view of our brother's or our sister's defects. In other words, we can see our own hearts. Well, can we? (laughs) Better. Who knows the heart of man except the spirit of man, right? So we know our own hearts. Do you know your brother's and your sister's hearts? We are conscious of at least some of the corruption that is in our own heart, that is residual. We have painful evidence of the impurities of our own heart. And the motives, the motives of our heart that inspire us, they are impure. And we are aware of that. We are aware of the evil thoughts and the corrupt desires of our own heart. But we don't have the same view of those errors of our brothers and sisters. We can see their outward conduct. But in our case, we can see our heart. So it's natural for those who have a proper sense of the depravity of their own heart and have the proper sense of humility to be harder on themselves than on their brother or sister. And they can be hopeful like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, hope uh, hopeth all things and, you know, and I uh, can't think of the verses, uh, beareth and, and it, it just, it just hopes for the best in others. That's an outworking. It's, it's the love chapter, but we could call it the humility chapter. We could because there cannot be true love without true humility, not true love. So it's, it's to uh, it's natural for those who have the sense of depravity of their own souls to generously hope that it is not so with others and to believe that they have purer hearts. This will lead us to feel that they are worthy of more respect than we are. This is always the characteristics of modesty and humility. A truly pious man will always, therefore, will be an humble man and will wish that others should be preferred in office and in honor before himself.
Of course, this does not make an humble man blind to the defects of others. But when they are revealed, and they will be, they are life, then he will be gentle, he will be kind, he will be gracious, he will be loving. This man, this woman, will be that way with the defects of other people. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, this is carefully worded. This is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, look not, look not every man on his own thing, but also on the things of others. The wording is, you do need to look after your own things. It's not saying don't look after your own thing. It's saying you need to look after your own thing, but not just your own thing. Be aware and be sensitive of your brothers and your sisters, what we heard this morning in a very specific way. Don't neglect your own things, but do not let your care and attention be wholly absorbed by your own concerns or by the concerns of your own family. Show a tender interest for the happiness of the whole, of others. And let the well-being of other people lie dear and close to your heart. That's what this verse, look not only on your own thing, but also on the things of others. Care dearly about others. Of course, it doesn't mean that you become a busybody in other people's matters. There is a proper sphere. It doesn't mean that you that you ignore all the proverbs and you go to your friend's house early in the morning and shout loudly to him. They, they will not appreciate that. There's a place for tact and all that. <clears throat> but it is the duty of every man, of every person, to look also on the things of others. Nobody is at liberty to live just for themselves, to disregard the wants and the needs of others. And so the object of this instruction that Paul's giving here is to break up the narrow spirit of selfishness and to produce a benevolent affection for the happiness of other people. If we notice a competitive spirit coming up within us towards someone, you sense this thing coming up in your heart, an impure motive. The competitiveness is an impure motive. I'm not talking about just fun games and so on. That's not what I'm talking about. But a competitiveness. Someone else is doing something well. And there's a competitiveness. You know what I'm talking about, I believe. Or is it just me? (laughs) Do something to serve that person. Do something. Instead of matching that person in that competition or struggling with it in your heart, serve that person. Maybe you'll come to the place in your heart where you are glad that he is on top. Wouldn't that be great? Where each one of us 
are glad when the others of us are prospering in something that we like to do. Wouldn't that be a great fellowship? Remember the yoke that you took on when you came to Christ? That easy and light yoke? That yoke that you will find rest for your soul? This is it. This humility. True humility is rest for the soul. You will find rest. You will eliminate the the strife and the vainglory and you will find rest. Time is moving on. I just want to look a little bit at the example of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. And um, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made into the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And they say this is the seven steps downward. He made himself of no reputation at the first step. He took upon him the form of a servant. Second, made into the likeness of men, the third. And being found as fashion as a man, the fourth, he humbled himself. Fifth, became obedient to death. Sixth, even the death of the cross. Seventh, we have only a few drops of apprehension compared to the ocean of what actually Christ actually did here. I have meditated on these verses. We have very small understanding of what Christ gave up and what he did to this eternal, uncreated creator allowed himself to become the object of abuse and ridicule by the very creatures that he made and that he came to save. And he did it so he could win them back. If you have any sense of right and wrong, if you have any sense of justice, if you have any sense of crime and punishment, you would know what he should do with the whole lot of people, them and us, who did that to him. If you have any sense of justice, you know what he should do, but he didn't do it. And there's a law. There's a law. There's a reality. He humbled himself. He completely emptied himself. And then what happened? Then he was highly exalted. Given him a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The rule or the law or the reality is this. Humility will bring with it loss do you believe that it brought loss for Christ first humility will bring you loss you will lose something 
that might be precious and dear to you. Jesus lost everything. In fact, humility seems counterintuitive. It seemed to go against our survival instinct of letting others go first. Naturally, we push ourselves forward. It's our nature. Ambition is our nature. But when we are saved and when we believe God, we will humble ourselves in all of these areas and we will experience loss. But exaltation is coming and we need to remember that. That's actually why we need to live a life of faith. First Peter 5, again, verses 6 and 7. We have read verse 5. Now we're going to read verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. True humility comes from the heart, not from law. Um, Outward training is good. We train outwardly and we teach outwardly and we exhibit outward expectations on each other and that's okay but it is limited we can have an outward form but not the inward spirit and Jesus Christ by his example here showed us the pathway to humility so uh, the challenge here at the end is we are at the threshold of a new year what trajectory will you or I have in this year What will be the 2020 vision for 2020? I heard that a couple weeks ago. This is 2020. Do you have 2020 vision? Do you have a clear vision? And let me ask in this context, do you have a clear vision of a high view of God and humility for yourself? At the end of this next year, Will you be freer of strife and vainglory than you are now? Will you have the characteristics of a child? Will you be firmly yoked with Jesus? And will you find that rest for your soul? Will you have a higher estimation of your brothers and sisters than you do now? And a lower estimation of yourself will you in this next year what for trajectory and just a verse here in closing 1 Peter 5 11 and 10 and 11 but the God of all grace who had called us unto his eternal glory by Lord Jesus after that ye have suffered a while make you perfect establish strengthen settle you To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I say may God's blessing be with each one of you in this next year. And as the song goes, let us pray for each other and not faint along the way this next year. May God bless you.